Thanks, Chris. It's all good. A Bible full of communion juice. How good is that? Um, as Chris said, my name's Clint. Uh, Malie's sitting in front. I've got some daughters around. I'll show some pics of them. They're dreading that. Um, I've got the responsibility as the Advancement Director for Alpha Cruces University College. Now, just to put that into perspective, in 1948, a group of students were at a um, <clears throat> Baptist Bible College, and they had a prayer meeting. And unfortunately, actually fortunately, the prayer meeting got out of hands. Spirits started to show up. They started speaking in tongues, and they got expelled from a Bible college because they prayed too much. Um, that's part of the story. And they came to the ACC then, the um, uh, <clears throat> Assemblies of God, and said, we need a Bible college for the Assemblies of God. That started in 1948, and more than 20,000 people are part of our alumni, has studied through Alpha Cruces in various capacities. But in 1996, a person called Pastor David Cartledge stood up at a national conference uh, and said, God has called us to raise Christian leaders for the Christian world, for churches, but he's changing the emphasis Moving forward, God is calling Alpha Cruces to start raising Christian leaders for the marketplace. Now, that was a very new understanding, a very st uh, strong aspiration. And from 96, we started on this journey, grappling and considering what it means to become a Christian university, realizing that there were four steps that we needed to complete. We needed to become our own higher education provider, a self-accrediting entity, we needed to become a um, university college, which we are now, that actually shows the government that we can do research. But in that whole process, we found out that higher education in Australia was set up in a way to keep religion and Christianity out. That's why if you look at how many evangelical or Pentecostal universities we have in Australia, none. So it's a targeted approach to keep the space of the secular world away from Christianity. And we believe that that's not right. See, so much in terms of our understanding of life is determined by higher education research. We use the term safe schools project that, re or that introduced an ideology into society. And I don't wanna go into the details, but that has affected every primary public school in Australia, nine years worth of work and it has affected us, not for the positive. And you know why we couldn't stop it? Because we don't have a seat at the table when these kind of policies are formed to say, no, that's not right. So we're convinced at Alpha Cruces that the next step for us in the next season is moving from the aspiration to having a Christian university to making it possible. And in the next five years, we're going to do this. We're going to trigger a few moves that will launch the first Christian university in Australia to raise Christian leaders, but also to shape society in a way where Christ has a voice in the public space again. So if you have any questions with regards to that, please come and talk to me after, um, after the service. I think it is pivotal for us to move into that environment. I wanna start this morning with um, just a topic, momentous moments. I'm gonna speak on that this morning. But before I dip into the sermon, I wanna read a verse that really captured my attention a few years ago. And I wanna give you a bit of context. If you think of one thing that was a distant reality for most people before the time of Jesus, it would have been the glory of God. If you read through the Old Testament, it said that Moses had an experience of the glory of God, but mostly, if you, were, um, if you had this desire for the glory of God, everything in religion was set up to keep you almost away from it. The only person that had a, an experience of the glory of God was the high priest once a year that went into the holiest of holy. Now that's... Of theology, I don't have time to go into, the, into that. 
But when we talk about the concept of the glory of God, the question is, what does that actually entail? It means everything connected to the character and capacity of God. So if we say that God's glory was revealed, we would say that God's character and God's capacity in its fullness was revealed. So when John comes and starts writing his, um, <clears throat> his letter, he says in John 1 that we saw the glory of God. Now that's an interesting statement. Because up until that point, there were very limited people that saw God's glory. But John takes it further and obviously goes through his, um, his gospel. And in John 17, 22, just before Jesus um, was handed over to be crucified, Jesus prays for us. So he actually says, I wanna pray for those who will still come when they hear the message. So he's got us in mind. And listen to what he prays in John 17, verse 22. He says, the glory that you have given me. Who's Jesus talking to? God, the Father. So, so Jesus is saying, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What does that mean? Everything connected to the fullness of God's character and competency is given. It's available. That's why when you understand the big story that Jesus actually felt it's okay to go to heaven because we are now carriers of his glory. We're carriers of his character and his capacity in every situation. So there's something in this understanding where we are faced with situations, momentous moments in life that God's ultimate purpose is actually to reveal his glory, not just to us, but in us. And that's something that I wanna share around this morning. But just quickly, the word momentous is actually a very interesting word. It's, um, it's a decision, an event, or a change of great importance or significance, especially bearing on the future. So when we speak of momentous moments, we all um, have had some of these moments or will be going through moments like this that where a specific moment in time, whether positive or negative, had a momentous impact in your life. Just think about, back about your, your journey, just your experiences in life. Try thinking of some of those momentous moments that you thought, hey, um, God, what's happening? Some of it positive, some of them negative, and just think about how that actually impacted your life. I've got a few pictures up about momentous moments in the past. Uh, if you can put up the first one. Who was alive when this happened? Hey, there's quite a number. Some say it's fact, some say it's fiction, I don't know. There's a man on the moon. Uh, second one. Who can remember this day? Momentous moment. I still remember um, exactly where I was, what happened when I heard for the first time that this event was taking place. I drove back home, switched on the telly. I still had an exam to go and write. I called my uh, lecturer and said, I'm not gonna make it. I'll write it the other, on another day. And I sat and watched, at that time, the one uh, tower was only hit. I actually saw live how the second plane came in. I remember all of that. Another momentous moment for me, um, next pick, in 1999. Oh, I've got an ulcer. Um, if there's any good counselors in here, please help me. Um, we had a revival service, and most of the men went out to their cars to listen how... Um, South Africa would beat Australia. And unfortunately, on that last ball, that run out meant that no man ever came back to church <laughs> for a long, long time. Um, but there's another momentous moment that, um, that I wanna, if you can skip on to the next one. This is what really mat matters in life. Um, I mean, this is the sport that everyone agrees it is the sport. 
Um, <laughs> and if you tell me that you don't care about rugby union, if my team played that badly, I wouldn't care about them either. So, <laughs> but, but probably the, the biggest moments in my life has to do with this next pick, and I'm going to get killed for this. Um, <laughs> this is my family, and from marriage to the birth of each one to the day that I decided to buy them this pajamas, um, <laughs> I do this, boys, because they don't look sexy and that, so just leave them alone. Uh, <laughs> no. Okay, skip on, skip on, skip on. <laughs> See, momentous moments are those circumstances in life that forces a course adjustment. It's those bigger-than-life moments where we don't know what to do or where to go, and it's in those moments that I believe that God is introduced into our life or sometimes reintroduced into our life. C.S. Lewis said it best when he said the, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. And then he says, it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That so often when we come to church, and, and in this, specifically in the season of, of waiting on um, the Messiah to come, so often we think about, okay, God, what are you going to do to make my life better and easier? And I think one of the shocking discoveries that I made uh, in my life is that God doesn't have my comfort as his number one priority. That there's moments in life where he'll actually allow, and I'm not even sure how this works, but even introduce something to get my attention so that I would listen. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, made a comment. He said, there's an undeniable relationship between the big and sometimes bad and unexpected circumstances in life and our faith. So you can't take the experience and the growth of faith out of the conversation. He comes in James 1 verse 2 to 4. It's one of the little meetings that I want to have with James. Um, he says, consider it pure joy, not just joy, the purest form of joy, unadulterated joy, joy that actually comes from this deep place within your spirit. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, girls, you're included, whenever you face trials of many kinds, that's an assumption. It's going to happen. He says, because you know that the testing, that word testing is actually the process of proving or approving the genuineness of a product. So when you are tested, why is it there for? To prove the genuineness, the authenticity, the realness of what's available. He says that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work. Now don't raise your hand. But who of you sitting here in difficult moments decided to opt out? Only to realize that God wasn't done yet. Going through experiences in life where you knew that it's difficult, it's challenging, you had that notion of God, where are you? And you opted out. Only to realize later on that God was busy with something unique, something special. He wanted to complete something in you. And you've got to stay in it long enough. Why? Because you want to see God finish something in you. Because it's in the finishing that it can be revealed. He said, if he finishes so that you may be mature, complete, and lack, not lacking anything. Now, how, how often when you go through those situations do you feel that I'm lacking everything? <laughs> I'm lacking peace. I'm lacking hope. Sometimes I'm in complete loneliness because not everyone understands the situation that I'm in. 
James comes and he says, it's in those moments that you've got to realize that God isn't just up to something. He wants to finish something in you so that you may become more mature, so that you may have access to the completeness of who he is. So God is always up to something in the big momentous moments in life. I want to take you through a little story in the Bible out of um, <clears throat> John chapter 11 that actually shows us, and, and, and I want to say this is probably going to reconstruct some of our understandings of the way that God works, because Jesus does something in this story that completely goes against script. So I want to ask you to do something special for me this morning. Try and not access the old religious files when you hear this story, because we've all heard this story before. I want to ask you to, to just stay in the moment for a little while to say, put yourself in the situation. Try and experience it from their point of view so that you could see and learn something in terms of the way that God finishes and completes certain aspects of our faith. Is that okay? So John chapter 11 starts by saying, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. If you've watched The Chosen, Lazarus is the guy that plays ball with Jesus. And Jesus can't catch well. Um, I'm not sure that's true. But everything we know about Lazarus, Mary, and Martha sort of depicts the scene that they were close friends of Jesus. That this wasn't just someone from, um, uh, that Jesus knew from or through someone. It was someone that Jesus visit, visited their house. He spent time with them. There's another story in the Bible that uh, uh, represents them. So these are close friends with Jesus. Verse 3 says, so the sister sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. So it's not just Lord Lazarus is sick. They actually come with the term of endearment. That Lord, the one that you love deeply, the one that you know, your friend is sick. Now let's just pause there for a moment. <laughs> we all know a good pastor. Let's say Pastor Jason, Pastor Mark, Pastor Chris. And there's a situation at home and you realize that someone is really sick and they need prayer. What's your expectation? Just for a moment. So we're not talking about a little flu. We're talking about something significant. You call them saying, hey, we've got, we've got an issue. What's your expectation? Would you expect that maybe they would come over and pray? Is that fair? That they would show care and trust God for a miracle in that situation? Is that fair to assume? Well, Jesus does complete, the complete opposite. It says in verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. And here comes the statement. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified in it. So Jesus introduces something very new. Sickness, illness, disease, negative momentous moments can be for God's glory. That there's certain situations, it's not always the good, it's not always the calling, it's not always the, the shine moments, the Facebook reel. There's certain moments in life that fit in that really bad category that when they appear, it's for God's glory. Now let's just take a step back. We're at the end of the year. And about three weeks from now, we're going to all start talking about New Year's resolutions. And we're all going to start running or Go, we'll all go to the gym. Everything will happen until 5 past 1 a.m. on the 1st of January. <laughs> and then we realize, no, there's a whole day of eating waiting for us. So there's all these New Year's resolutions. There's things we do in terms of our physical appearance, our character, work, finances, all those kind of things. There could be people here today that if that you think about 2023, 20, 2023 was your momentous moment where some of the hopes 
the dreams, the experiences, the things that you thought, God, I hope this year that'll come to pass. Maybe this was the year where it didn't. And not just it didn't happen. It introduced something negative, something that changed the course of your life, your experience, the essence of who you are. And you're sitting with the weight of those momentous moments, sort of uh, uh, <clears throat> just pushing down on you. And you realize that you can't do anything about it. This is a situation that God needs to step in. See, I like those little, um, it's for God's glory moments when we get a promotion at work. And we say, oh, I'm so thankful for the gifts and talents that God gave me. And it's all for his glory. But we don't do it with the negative stuff. I mean, we don't walk around with a little shiny poster on Facebook. I'm going through financial difficulties, and it could be all for God's glory. Um, or maybe I'm sitting in the middle of a massive relationship challenge, and on Facebook, hey guys, I'm in the middle, of it, but it's all for God's glory. We don't do that, do we? Because what do we want in the midst of those challenging situations? We just want it to end. We just want it to finish. We just want it done. We just want to be out of it. And sometimes <laughs> the way out is actually the way through. You've got to walk it out. So verse 5, Jesus comes and he says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So Jesus says, you need to understand, this isn't just a family. There's something about this relationship that goes beyond the average relationship. So when, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, this is where we choose another church. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> this is where we say, the pastors in that church really don't love us. They don't care about us. We're going to Redcliffe um, because Emerge is the best church. <laughs> but really, it makes no sense. Jesus actually does exactly the opposite of what you would expect him to do. Everything about this is wrong. Jesus gets the word that Lazarus is sick, the one that he loves, and he does nothing. It's not that you read in those two days that Jesus went and he did this and he did that and he went there and it was only a few miles away. He did nothing. He left it. And, and, and I think <laughs> it's in this situation where a new side of God dealing with our challenges is introduced to our understanding. It's what happens when God doesn't answer our prayer in the way we want to. What happens if God stays silent? What happens when we're in that little moment where we believe God, this, if there ever was a good moment for you to pitch and to show that you're real, this is it. And then there's the sense that God does nothing. He's distant and he's quiet. So for two days, Mary and Martha suffer watching their brother die. Just think about that. No real hospitals. He probably died at home with two sisters watching him deteriorate moment by moment moment. Think about the hope. Jesus is coming. Think about everyone around them thinking that, well, if ever there's someone that Jesus would respond to, it would be this family. And Jesus stays away for two days. Then after two days, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now, this is um, important to understand that the town of Bethany, where, G where Lazarus lived, just a few days before, they actually tried to stone Jesus there. So he was kicked out of the city. So this was not a good place for Jesus to go back to. And, and I'm convinced that fear didn't play a part, but the understanding that there was something up in terms of revealing God's glory. But for the disciples, I mean, they didn't mind not going back to Judea. It's like, hey, Jesus, it's a good place where we are right here, not knowing that Lazarus was dead. 
So, so they've got this strong sense that we'd love to stay right here, Jesus. And if you want to do something, um, why don't you try one of those wireless healings? You've done a few of them before. Just speak the word and everything will be good. And these guys were scared. And remember, we're not talking about just normal human beings. We're talking about Peter, James, John. We're talking about the guys that we actually uh, name our children after. And I just want to roll something in to this. If you've ever wondered about the true uh, capacity and the influence of Christianity, just ask yourself the question, what do we call our kids today? It's Mary, Martha, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Where did those names come from? These stories. If you do a bit of history, we realize that this was actually a group of people that lived in the armpit of the Roman Empire. They were nothing. But guess what we call our dogs today? Nero, Caesar. Come on, Caesar. <laughs> Come, buddy. <laughs> Just the actual impact of Christianity on the known world. And it'll continue and continue and continue. Um, so it's, it's in this place where uh, the disciples were good at refreshing Jesus' memory when he said, let's go back there. Um, they said to him in verse 8, but Rabbi, only a few days ago the people in Judea, Judea tried to stone you and you're going back there? So please, um, if they do something to you, we're collateral damage. We don't want to be in those. So speak the word, Jesus. You did that with the Roman centurion. Just speak the word and heal them and we'll all just sit happily ever after a few miles away. But then uh, Thomas realizes that Jesus wants to go back and we all know Thomas by now. Is the one that sort of is the rational thinker. Is the one that sees life for what it actually is. Not a lot of hope and faith in his, in his worldview. And in verse 11, he says <clears throat> um, to them, after he had said uh, this to them, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples again, Jesus, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. So please, don't let us go there. So basically, we don't need to go there. We're going to die if we get there. Verse 13, Jesus comes and he says, um, Lazarus is dead. Now this is a shock to all of them. Because if he was dead, Jesus, why stay in nothing for two days? Why didn't you respond? Why didn't you react? Why didn't you at least say something? We could have done, we know you could have done something. So there would have been a lot of confusion in terms of Lazarus' death with Mary and Martha and with Jesus' disciples. But it's this point in verse 15 that Jesus comes and gives them a different context. He says, I'm glad that I wasn't there. I'm glad that I didn't appear in that situation. I'm glad that I didn't solve this in the way you thought I should have. He says, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. So that you may, what? Believe. Our hope is directly connected to our capacity to believe in him. Where Jesus goes from theory to reality in our lives. He says, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So you ask the question, God, what about Lazarus' sake? Poor guy died so that we could learn a lesson. What about Mary and Martha? What about for everyone else's sake? Jesus is actually saying, I'm glad for the disappointment that you have in me at certain times. I'm glad that they actually went through the ridicule and the challenge when Lazarus died, where everyone said, aha, so you see, he didn't pitch. He didn't respond. He didn't act the way that you thought he would. Jesus is actually saying that there are certain moments in life that I am willing to allow the one that I love to die and the hearts of the people that know me to be broken. I'm glad because there's something bigger that you need to discover in terms of who I am and what I can do. This is where James picks up and he says, well, that's why we consider it pure joy, 
It's in these moments that we know it's not up to us and it's not up to the situation. God is up to something completely different in our lives. And his, in, um, his inaction in this moment doesn't say that he's going to be inactive in every moment. But the challenge for us is to not break the tension, to stay in that moment. It's in this where suddenly a word is introduced, a word called the henna clause. We know it well. It's the word so that. Henna is a Greek word that basically means it brings two things together. So you want to know why <laughs> I'm glad we were not there? You want to know why we stayed there or stayed away? You want to know why I let Lazarus die? Why I let Mary and Martha's hearts be broken? It's for your sake so that you may believe. Now, actually what Jesus is saying, I want to upgrade your faith. <laughs> and, and I'm going to show you just the way that Jesus upgrades people's faith through this experience. Where if he's the one constantly walking into every situation, just um, helping and healing and dealing, we don't grow. We stay on the same level. And we become extremely comfortable with this genie God that can do everything for us. But there's moments that God says, I know the call, the plan, the purpose that I have for your life. And in order for you to actually give representation of that calling, to reveal that to the world, I need to upgrade your software. I need to upgrade your understanding of my capacity in you. So I'm going to take you <laughs> through an interesting experience. So Jesus would allow someone that he knew personally, someone that he loved to die so that others may grow in their faith. See, it's an unreal story up until this point. It's almost a story that really doesn't fit in our little boxes of theology. Jesus staying away, doing nothing, waiting until someone dies. You know how I know this, this story is real? She couldn't make that up. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, not a, there's not a chance that the way that John would, I'm going to write a good story. I'm going to make something up to say how good and how beautiful Jesus is. He won't write this. The only way this gets into the Bible is if it's real. So if, you're, if you've ever wondered, I wonder if those guys just sort of faked their way through. This story shows that there's nothing fake about the Gospels. So we go down to verse 21. Martha sees Jesus coming down the road days later, and she comes running to Jesus. Verse 21 says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Who's ever felt like this? God if you pitched in that situation, we wouldn't have lost the business or the relationship or someone dying, all this. I think we've all had that experience before. Basically, what she's saying is, it's, you, it's your fault, Jesus. I've seen you heal strangers. I've seen you do miracles for people that doesn't know you. And when it comes to us, you stood at the side doing nothing. Verse 22, she says to Jesus, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Imagine that faith. Huh? In that situation, in that disappointment, completely disillusioned, she says to Jesus, with all of this happening, with all my anger, my frustration at you, I still know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus looks at her and says, your brother will rise again, which is a great statement, but she sort of takes it from a different vantage point. See, the Jews believed in the resurrection of life, and they knew that there would be life after death. So she bounces back with a very, cool, a very good theological response, saying, I know we will meet again in the resurrection at the last day. It's the kind of thing that we say at funerals, don't we? One day, you'll see Bobby soon. Does that really make you feel better? No, because you lost him. Uncle Bobby's gone. So Jesus says, your brother will rise. And she says, I know Jesus. I know where you're going with this. That 
I will see him when I die. Probably the thing that disappoints me most is how often we've taken some of the promises and the things that God wants to make available in this life and we've, ring, we've sort of placed them that it's only available in the next life. Where yes, there's an incredible heaven waiting for us and there's a beautiful future and I can wait to die, but I'm excited about what's coming. But we can't make the mistake to assume that every good promise from God is only heaven bound. There's certain incredible stuff that God promises for this life, in this moment, so that we could uh, realize and, 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 and actuate the call of God on our lives. So when Martha comes to Jesus and he says, yes, I know I'll see him when we all die and we'll all go to heaven and what a glorious day it'll be. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. Says Martha, up until this point, you've known me as the one who can heal, the one who can pray, the one who was sent. But I'm going to reveal, I'm going to upgrade your faith that I'm not just the one who can heal, I'm the one who can resurrect. I'm the one who can bring life. I'm going to show you that even in the moments of death, even if there's a grave, even if there's four days that's passed, that nothing is impossible for me. And Martha's at, at this point, so she's like, what does this actually mean? Jesus comes in verse 25 onwards. He says, he who believes in me will live. This is different to when you die, you'll live. It says, when you believe in me, you will access the resurrection life that is only found in me. So it's not, death is not the doorway there. Belief is the doorway. Faith becomes the doorway to real, lasting resurrection life that cannot be confounded by anything. So Jesus says to her that if you believe in me, you will live even though you die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? Now this is, remember, at this point, we've still got a guy wrapped up in a grave. So this is all conversation. This is all theory. This is all Jesus saying to Martha, listen, I'm promising you something that you've never thought possible. Something's going to happen. And I can just put myself in Martha's shoes, just thinking, how much of this is just fluff, Jesus? How much of this sits in the category that you're going to change the whole world and well, basically they just chased you out of the city two days ago? How much of all of this sits in the category where you're a really, really good guy? But are you the Messiah? Are you actually the one that could do what you're telling me right now? And, and I think everyone sitting here would, would be with me. If Jesus didn't do anything after that, this story wouldn't have made it into the Bible. Because we pick the story up where everyone sort of goes um, <clears throat> to, um, to the gravesite. Verse 27, Martha says, yes, Lord, um, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who's coming to the world, so I believe all of that. And then the Bible says, Jesus wept. Standing at the grave, they went to the gravesite, and the Bible said, Jesus wept. Why? I love the fact that we have a Savior that has the capacity to feel with us, to experience with us. Jesus, knowing exactly what he was going to do, stood in that moment and he absorbed the pain and the disillusionment and the disappointment of Martha. He stood there and he allowed himself to feel what it feels like to lose. And he came to that point, it said, Jesus wept. So much so that the Jews said, see how he loved him. So this was a show of real emotion. This was a moment where everyone could see that this wasn't just something Jesus was doing. He was deeply, 
committed and deeply connected to Lazarus and everything that was happening in that moment. And then he comes and asks a very interesting question. He said to Mary and Martha, would you, those two words, would you have your servants remove the stone? Would you? I've been at a few funerals in my life. And I can promise you, if someone came to me saying, dig that one up, I'm going to say no. <laughs> That's, um, Martha's response is, Jesus, he's been dead four days. Now, it's a significant thing. After four days, they believed you were really dead. So you were dead, and then you were dead, dead. Um, so you were gone. The King James Version said, he stinketh. You can go and read it. So it wasn't just dead, he stinketh. Um, not unlike some of the people sitting next to us. Um, so, so Jesus waited for the moment where there was no uncertainty about the fact that Lazarus was dead. And then he comes to that point where it's done, it's finished, it's been put away. And he asks her the question, would you remove the grave? There's no miracle if Martha doesn't remove the stone or call for that to happen. Nothing happens. And it was so impressed on my heart when I thought about that, how often we have these experiences where some of our dreams, some of our hopes, some of the things that we thought would happen has sort of died off to the point where everyone agrees with you that there is no hope anymore. And Jesus stands and he says, would you? Would you consider opening up that conversation again? Would you consider trusting again? Would you consider trying again? Would you consider believing again? Would you remove whatever you put in front of that to be taken away so that I can show you that I'm not just the God of the living, I am the resurrection and the life. That I can call the things that are not as though they were. And that in this situation, I can look at any given circumstance and I can speak life into that. It's at that point where verse 41, Jesus comes and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me and I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here so that, why? They may believe. In other words, I'm praying so that everyone standing here, that there's a connection between my Father and me. So they don't think that I did something on my own. Instead, I'm simply here to do your will. And it's at that point where Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And I just think about just the, the drama of that moment. Just the experience of Mary, Martha, the disciples, that at this point they were glad they weren't dead yet. Um, um, if you understand the Jewish context, they had all the mourners there. It would have been a community event. Everyone would have been there. Just think about that moment where Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And suddenly this guy that was done, was dead, walks out. And Jesus looks at them and says, remove the grave clothes. He's alive. Absolutely convincing everyone that he is the resurrection and the life. I'm not sure where you are in terms of life, in terms of your experiences, but one thing I know is that every one of us has these momentous moments. You've either been through them or you're in it or you're on your way <laughs> to some of them. Some of them are good, some of them are not. But one of the things that I know is that circumstances don't determine our faith. Our belief in who he is does. And I'm so convinced that there's people here this morning, Jason, you guys can come up, that need to understand that, that some 
of the challenges in your life hasn't been to derail you. It's been there to upgrade your faith. Some of those moments, some of those challenges, some of those things that, that you thought, God, where are you? Why did you do nothing? Why did you stay away? Why did you wait until everything died? It's because God wanted you to experience an upgrade in terms of your belief system. That in everything we see and in everything we do, God is constantly working in us to see him in a different way. And, and so often we fall into the disadvantage of living life by our own perception. Living life by what we think should happen or shouldn't happen. It's where Paul comes in Ephesians and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray that you would see life from a different perspective so that you can start hoping again. So I want to conclude with this. Is it possible that there are points and moments in your life that God would leverage your deepest pain to showcase His glory? And to elevate you to completely different experience of belief and relationship in Him. Is it possible that when you walk into a moment of suffering, that God says, well, this one is an experience that I'm going to allow them to go through. I'm not going to stop it. I'll be there. Even though there would be times that they feel like I'm doing nothing, I'm going to stick with them. I'll be with them. I'll walk through with them. I'll make my people, my church, my family, my spirit available, but I'm not stopping the process. This is something that they need to go through. Is it possible that you're in this situation wondering, God, what do I do next? Romans 8 verse 17 says something of this. He says, we can share in His glory if we share in His suffering. And one of the things that really got me was the fact that Jesus was the ultimate example of God using an experience like that. God allowed Jesus to be crucified in the most brutal way possible because He saw the glory at the end of it. Even at the point where Jesus stood and said, Father, if there's any way that you could take this from me, please, I don't want to go through this. And I think that echoed the experience that we have so often in our lives. If there's ever a way, if there's ever a moment that you could stop this, please stop this. But Jesus still comes. He said, but still, your will be done. Because I don't just want to be a good times Christian. I want to be a Christian that represents the character and capacity of God in everything that's available. That I want to live the kind of life that would showcase God's glory to a world that needs to see something real. Needs to see evidence of what it looks like, not just for us to say that we're Christian, but for us to be Christian, to be Christ in everything we do. Romans 8 verse 26, Paul comes. He says, it's in the moments when we get tired of waiting. <laughs> We've heard that word before this morning. That God's Spirit is right, along helping, right alongside helping us along. He says, there's moments that we don't know what to pray or how to pray. And he says, it doesn't matter because the Spirit does the praying for us. In those moments, making prayers of our wordless size, size, our aching grows. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. He knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be sure that every detail, the good, the bad, and the ugly, every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good, that God doesn't miss a beat, that whatever you're going through, 
in this moment. God is present. God is alongside. God is working. God is constructing. God is doing something so that good will come out of this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your character. We thank you for your capacity. We thank you, Lord, that you are and have been so willing to share this with us in every moment in life. The good and the challenge. The beautiful, Lord, and the brutal. You have been wanting to share your character and capacity with us, to showcase your glory in our lives. Lord, we understand that we're human. And one of the things, Lord, that, that we hate about ourselves, we know it's part of who we are, is so often we would choose comfort over calling. We would choose ease instead of actually growing. That it's in those moments that you trigger certain things to upgrade our faith. To not leave us static. To not leave us at a point, Lord, where, where we stay undone. Where we stay immature. Where you allow certain things into our lives to complete and to finish certain things so that we could believe you at a different level. This morning, Lord... <laughs> think in a room like this, there's people that represent every character in the story. The Thomas, the Martha, the Lazarus, um, even the mourners, the mockers, everyone. But I want to thank you, Lord, that we can know that you are consistent in the fact that you can see the end from the beginning. And I pray this morning, Lord, for people that have experienced some of these dramatic, momentous moments, Lord. Experienced that sense of loss, of disappointment, of um, neglect. I pray that they would know that you are still working, still doing, still completing in order to mature their faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.